Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. And joining us on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, it is a lot to, I think our listeners will remember and know who he is. It's, of course, Burt Levy, the author of his famous uh, book, uh, The Last Open Road. And, of course, you can see him at Road America up at the New Paddock. It is Burt Levy. Welcome to the show, Burt. Hey, how you doing? Hang on. I'm doing fantastic. I'm with the sound on me. There we go. Go ahead. All right. And uh, Bert's joining us, and uh, there's a, I, I, you know, Tom Stoller, a friend of ours and a friend of the show, uh, ClassicCars.com, wrote this really cool article about you as a stunt driver in the Blues Brothers. Now, Bert, I've known you for 20-plus years, Long whether time. it's at the, Harry, at the Harry Miller meet or through David Hobbs or Road America, you name it, and this is one part of your career I did not know about. And uh, kind of walk us through uh, how this actually came about uh, with, with you working oh, as a stunt driver. <clears throat> well, I think, first of all, um, I guess where this all starts, uh, I've been racing cars and writing about it for, well, too many years. Uh, I actually started writing about it as a way to get my hobby for free. And people would give me cars to drive, and I started writing for a couple of magazines and then wrote a couple of books. And before they had all started, I had started racing, and it was starting to dawn on me that I really couldn't afford it. I'm sure that that never occurred to anybody else. <clears throat> and an opportunity came my way. Uh, the movie The Blues Brothers came to Chicago, and part of the deal that Mayor Byrne offered them, uh, they gave him some property really cheap uh, to stage from, and they sold them 200 uh, Chicago and state police police cars. Uh, my understanding was at 200 bucks a throw, and then included the Mars light bars and the paint jobs and everything, which, of course, mm-hmm. were worth more than the $200 right there. Sure. But they didn't want to pay stunt money uh, for union or guild stunt drivers to drive all those cars. Uh, there were only a couple of guys in the front that did the real, what they call the gags, and the rest they needed some competent drivers that didn't have to be union stunt guys to follow along in line and slide the cars around a little bit. And somehow it got to a guy I used to work for at Lober Motors, which is a big downtown dealership that had Mercedes and Rolls-Royce and Alfa Romeo and Volkswagen. Word got to him that they were looking for drivers. And he called me up and he said, you've been racing for a while. Do you have any ideas? I said, sure. Um, at, at the very least, the instructors like myself that not only race but teach other racers, we might be a good place to start. <clears throat> so we got a, a call to go to a tryout. Uh, and I went with a good friend of mine who I'd co-driven with a bunch of times. He actually worked for us when we had our shop, uh, Mike Zajcik. And they brought us out to the Dixie Square Mall, 
which was completely derelict by then. It was in what had turned into a pretty terrible neighborhood. And it essentially, the neighborhood couldn't sustain a bunch of retail, you know, stores, clothing stores and bookstores and whatever. And so they bought the whole thing uh, for not much money at all. And we go out there and it's kind of dilapidated and the the parking areas are all kind of cracked concrete with grass growing up between the cracks, a lot like Sebring, actually. And um, they had a couple of these old cop cars, and there were a couple of stunt guys. Um, the guy I happened to draw to be my, it was like going to a driver's test, to be my, my uh, not instructor, my, my test guy was kind of second in command on the stunt crew. And I knew who he was because he used to race motocross, I think internationally for sure in the United States, very effectively. He was known as J.N. Roberts. Uh, Some of your listeners may remember him. And the overall stunt coordinator was Bud Eakins, who was not only a famous stunt coordinator, but also a motorcycle desert racer. And he passed away a couple of years ago. He had a wonderful collection of old motorcycles that were put up for sale. But at any rate, back to the test. I don't know J.N. He doesn't know me. I'm just another guy there. You get in the car, and he says, he he looks completely bored. He's sitting there with a newspaper on his lap. Okay, I want you to do what I tell you to do. When I tell you to do it, don't do anything until I tell you to do it. Accelerate as hard as you can that way. And he points toward the far end of the lot. And so you take off with your foot planted. And now these are pretty old, used-up cop cars. Um, they've still got the, you know, the big cop car motor and the big brakes and um, the heavy-duty tires and everything. But they've been beat to you know what around the streets of Chicago for God knows how many hundred thousand miles. And so the the suspensions are um, wobbly. The shocks are pretty much gone on at least one or two corners. And the steering isn't great anymore because they've hit stuff. And you're heading toward the far end of the lot. You're getting up to like 55, 60, 65, and you can feel the wheels shaking in your hand. And the, the stunt coordinator is just sitting there. And now you're getting up 75, 80, 85, and the car is doing the booga-wooga. And meanwhile, the tree line at the far side of the parking lot is starting to move in your direction. If you wait until he tells you to go for the brakes to slow down, you're in. That's the whole test. If you don't wait for him to ask you to slow down to go and you go for the brakes, you're out. So I was in, and so was Mike. And uh, we were going to be paid the uh, munificent sum of $38.50 a day. Uh, which is why I couldn't continue with my Hollywood career because uh, I couldn't eat on it. I, I had another job at the time. But I did it for, I think, three or four days, and it was interesting. Um, do you want to ask another question? Do you want to take me in a different direction? Uh, well, I was talking with Bert Levy on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, of course, author of The Last Open Road and many other uh, books in a series and uh, yeah you know the other thing i wanted to talk about is of course i had a, a racing connection is the camera car tell us about the camera car that was, that from was another famous thing. movie Mo- most of being a hollywood extra is sitting on your butt and when you get tired of sitting on your butt you get to sit on your butt some more and you wait and wait and wait for the director and his crew to get a shot ready to shoot 
and then it's like a fire drill. Uh, and you've got uh, everybody to your cars, and you follow the cars, and you go down through Lower Wacker Drive or wherever you have to be shooting that day. And um, you shoot for maybe it's three minutes, maybe. And then you go sit on your butt some more. But the camera car was fascinating. There's a guy who's he's passed away now, but he's famous in racing circles. His name is Max Belkowski. He and his wife, Ina, ran a shop in the Hollywood area, uh, took care of a lot of cars for film people, including Haskell Wexler, the famous cinematographer. He built Haskell a car. And he was famous in road racing circles for building a series of specials called the Old Yellers. And they were really something in uh, nineteen fifty. Seven or eight, the first one debuted, which is actually built out of another special called The Lion Cage. And it was a really, by the time Max got done with it, it was a really clever car. He had torsion bar front suspension that he'd stolen off of a Morris Miner. He picked a, a 401 Buick engine, which was a very, you know, everybody was going with Chevys at that point. But the Buick was the biggest. I think at the time at 401 cubic inches, and they used to call it the nail head because the valves were so small. But the good thing about it is that because the ports and valves were small, if you put the right cam and induction on it, it had great mid-range torque. And the junkyards were full of them. It was a cheap motor to run. So Max built this thing called the Old Yeller. And the Mark II, which currently owned and campaigned by a friend of mine named Ernie Nagamatsu out on the West Coast. It's been at Monterey. It's been Road America. It's been everywhere. In 1961 or 62, Carol Shelby was driving it. A lot of great people drove it. Uh, Carol drove it, uh, Bob Bondurant, Dan Gurney, all these famous, famous guys uh, drove this car. And uh, that beeping is my wife. I think she wants me to let her in. Um, these famous guys drove it. At Road America, Carol Shelby was leading overall ahead of all the Maserati bird cages and Ferrari Testarossas and all the other famous, famous cars were running up there. And uh, he would have won the race, but the transmission broke. So this same guy, Max Belkowski, who built these, and he was, what a character. I remember meeting him out at a race in California. And his cars were famous for looking a little a little tatty when he brought them to the track. And he said, oh, I love it. First thing I do before I go to a racetrack is I throw a bunch of crap on the car, make it look even worse. Because that way, when we beat the Ferraris, it feels even sweeter. So Max built a car for the movie Bullet. It was going to be the camera car for Bullet. And they called it the bullet car. He basically took a 427 Corvette. And as you can do with Corvettes, he just unbolted the body and interior, took it right off. So now he's got the running gear and the frame. And he attached what essentially was a dune buggy body to it and then mounted camera mounts at various different places around the car. And that's the car that shot all those great action scenes in bullet and also all the ones that look like in-car video that were from the Blues Brothers. And one of the things they wanted to do is there's a 
sequence on Lake Street, and on Lake Street, that's underneath the L tracks, there are these concrete pylons every so many feet, and they wanted the camera to slalom in and out of them. And the poor cameraman, he's sitting on the front of this thing like a cow catcher. I mean, his butt is three inches off the ground. He's got his feet out and stirrups on either side sticking straight out. And the camera's essentially mounted where, right in front of the family jewels. And he's looking through uh, the eyepiece of the camera while the stunt driver is trying to slalom to these concrete posts. And they finally came to the conclusion that the, the posts were a little bit too close together to do it. They tried it and tried it and couldn't make it work. But the, the camera car, the bullet car, was, I think, one of the most interesting things. Uh, I think the other thing, there was a stunt, a stunt man, and I'm talking about the real guys, the union guys, they get paid kind of on degree of difficulty, you know, how how dangerous and, and uh, complicated is the gag that they have to do, and they're paid accordingly. And the director, there's one scene which is in the movie where... And it happens at the Daily Center. One of the cop cars, I think it's a state police car, spins to a halt. And then another cop car uh, gets launched off a ramp that you can't see. It's behind the, the car that spun to a halt and takes the whole top right off the car. And now normally what you would do is you would have the guy, you'd have a driver spin the car to a halt, cut, move the camera to a different position, get the poor guy out of the car, and then have the other car take the top off. But for some reason, it still eludes me. John Landis had it in his head that uh, he wanted it all in one shot. And that meant that somebody had to still be in the car when the other car came and took the top off. Well, I heard about this stunt, and I was really curious about it. So I went to the – they had, they had uh, bought an old, old – basically rat-infested factory on the near west side of Chicago in what's now an extremely trendy neighborhood. And that's where they set up all the cars for the stunts. And what they'd done, they'd taken a, uh, like a saber saw or a band, what do they call it? A, um, and they had cut through the A, B, and C pillars so that there was just like an eighth of an inch of metal left on each one. And then they took all the glass out and put sugar glass in. And they equipped it to, with what they call a rocker seat where the guy in the car can pull a lever and the seat essentially flops down so that the seat back is on the floorboard. And it'd be just as if a, a rocking chair fell over and you're laying on your back. So what this poor guy has got to do is spin the car to a halt, grab the lever while the other car that's going to take the top off is already in motion grab the lever, flop back down, and then the other car is going to go and take the top of the car he's in off right over his head. I mean, right in front of his face, basically. And none of the experienced uh, stunt drivers wanted to do it. Uh, they just felt that there was too much that could possibly go wrong. And there's always one you know, young guy that's trying to make a name for himself that he'll do anything, and he said, I'll do it. And he did it, and it, it came off. But, boy, your heart was in your throat watching it happen because you knew that guy was under, you know, in the car 
watching the undercarriage of the other car go right across in front of his face. Amazing stuff, Bert. Uh, and of course, this is all uh, in uh, in Tom Stoller's article, Tales of a Stunt Driver in the Blues Brothers, which can be found on uh, ClassicCars.com. Make sure you check it out. A really good story. There's a lot more information in there. We don't want to give it all away, but it's well worthy. Uh, definitely take a look at it. And a real, really neat story. And of course, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, Bert, are we going to see you up at Road America in a couple weeks? Yes. I was actually there last weekend uh, for the rescheduled vintage car race. Uh, signed some books and some audio books. Um, we did pretty good there. I actually was happy that there wasn't a huge crowd there because, you know, uh, no matter what your politics or position is on coronavirus, the fact is that we don't have a handle on it everywhere and there's still no vaccine. So I'm kind of waiting to see if there's any fallout. But as of now, I'm scheduled to be signing books with David Hobbs. Uh, he'll have his book at the Road America Paddock Shop and maybe also one evening at Siebkin's during the IndyCar weekend. Of course, I'll be back for it. And I'm trying to talk my way into one of the old IndyCars that they're going to have on display. Uh, I've gotten to drive a couple of those at the Milwaukee Mile and really enjoy them and um uh, you know, Elkhart's my home track, and some of these guys have never been to Elkhart or know which way it goes, and uh, it'd be fun if I can get in one. And uh, we'll be back for the vintage in July when I'll be judging in the concourse, signing books, and hopefully driving a little bit. And uh, then we'll be back again for IMSA. But all of this is going to depend on, you know, what's happening in Wisconsin, Illinois, everywhere else in the country. We've got to keep an eye on this thing. You bet. All right. Well, Bert, uh, we certainly appreciate you taking time out and uh, looking forward to see you in a couple weeks up at Road America. I'll be there. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.